0: Last week, in 2 Samuel, chapter 13, we left the story off with a big kind of to-be-continued. Saul, the king that the people asked for, the king who was head and shoulders above all the rest, the king who was the human figure that they wanted to follow into battle, the king who is supposed to be the one to deliver them from all of their enemies, this king has fallen. Fallen into sin. He's been disgraced, in fact, in chapter 13. Samuel comes and says, The Lord has stripped the kingdom out of your hands. But, that does not change the fact that just across the battlefield stands a menacing army of 30,000 Philistine chariots, 6,000 Philistine horsemen, and countless Philistine soldiers, more numerous than the sands of the seashore. Hordes bearing down on the people of God, threatening at this point to force the people of God completely out of the promised land. Last week as we finished reading chapter 13, my son Teddy blurted out, but who will save them? That's exactly right. Who will save them? It's not going to be Saul. We know that. Well, let's turn together to, to 1 Samuel chapter 13. We're going to pick up at the end of the chapter in verse 22. If you are here last week, the story broke off. Right in the middle with this kind of weird narrative aside. All about how the Philistines had taken all the blacksmiths out of the land of Israel. So that the people weren't able to make weapons. Which means you have a pretty big problem when a colossal Philistine army comes up against you. If not a single man in the Israelite army owns even a weapon. So if you found 1 Samuel 13, let's stand together as we honor the sword of the Spirit, the Word of God. And we begin reading 1 Samuel chapter 13, verse 22. So, on the day of battle, there was neither sword nor spear found in the hand of any of the people with Saul and Jonathan. But Saul and Jonathan, his son, had them. And the garrison of the Philistines went out to the pass of Michmash. One day Jonathan, the son of Saul, said to the young man who carried his armor, Come, let us go over to the Philistine garrison on the other side. But he did not tell his father. Saul was staying in the outskirts of Gibeah in the pomegranate cave at Migron. The people who were with him were about 600 men, including Ahijah, the son of Ahituv. Ichabod's brother, son of Phinehas, son of Eli, the priest of the Lord in Shiloh, wearing an ephod. And the people did not know that Jonathan had gone. Within the passes by which Jonathan sought to go over to the Philistine garrison, there was a rocky crag on the one side and a rocky crag on the other side. The name of the one was Bozes and the, uh, the name of the other was Sennet. The one crag rose in the north in front of Michmash and the other on the south in front of Geba. Jonathan said to the young man who carried his armor, Come, let us go over to the garrison of these uncircumcised. It may be that the Lord will work for us, for nothing can hinder the Lord from saving by many or by few. And his armor-bearer said to him, Do all that is in your heart. Do as you wish. Behold, I am with you heart and soul. Then Jonathan said, Behold, we will cross over to the men, and we will show ourselves to them. If they say to us, Wait until we come up to you, then we will stand still in our place and we will not go up to them. But if they say, come up to us, then we will go up for the Lord has given them into our hand and this shall be the sign to us. So both of them showed themselves to the garrison of the Philistines. And the Philistines said, look, Hebrews are coming out of the holes where they have hidden themselves. And the men of the garrison hailed Jonathan and his armor bearer and said, come up to us and we will show you a thing. And Jonathan said to his armor-bearer, Come up after me, for the Lord has given them into the hand of Israel. And Jonathan climbed up on his hands and feet and his armor-bearer after him, and they fell before Jonathan, and his armor-bearer killed them after him. And that first strike, which Jonathan and his armor-bearer made, killed about twenty men within, as it were, half a furrow's length in an acre of land. And there was a panic in the camp, in the field, and among all the people. The garrison and even the raiders trembled, the earth quaked, And it became a very great panic. And the watchmen of Saul and Gibeah of Benjamin looked. And behold, the multitude was dispersing here and there. And Saul said to the people who were with him, Count and see who has gone from us. When they had counted, behold, Jonathan and his armor-bearer were not there. So Saul said to Ahijah, Bring the ark of God here. For the ark of God went at that time with the people of Israel. Now while Saul was talking to the priest, The tumult in the camp of the Philistines increased more and more. So Saul said to the priest, Withdraw your hand. Then Saul and all the people who were with him rallied and went into the battle. And behold, every Philistine's sword was against his fellow. And there was a great confusion. Now the Hebrews who had been with the Philistines before that time and who had gone up with them into the camp, even they also turned to be with the Israelites who were with Saul and Jonathan. Likewise, when all the men of Israel who had hidden themselves in the hill country of Ephraim heard that the Philistines were fleeing, they too followed hard after them in in the battle. So the Lord saved Israel that day and the battle passed beyond Beth, David. Let's pray one last time. Lord, we ask that your word would pierce into our hearts to the dividing of soul from spirit Marrow from joint. And that your word would discern the deepest hearts and thoughts of our our minds. And that we would believe in Jesus. It's in his name we pray. Amen. You may be seated. Today we're going to be talking about a sword. One sword, in fact. Jonathan's sword. I'm not in the habit of writing sermons that focus on one particular detail in an entire chapter of scripture. Normally, I wouldn't make such a big deal out of Jonathan's sword, except that the Bible makes such a big deal out of Jonathan's sword. In fact, the Bible pauses in the middle of this terrifying battle to tell the whole Backstory of how it is that the entire army of Israel came to have no swords, no spears, but Saul and Jonathan did. Because it sounds so impossible, so ridiculous, so unbelievable. The end of chapter 13, verses 22 and 23 is the equivalent of the narrator stopping his story dead in its tracks taking us by the lapels and saying, Listen up! No swords in all of Israel's hands. There's a sword in Saul's hand, a sword in Jonathan's hand. This is essential for you to understand the story from here on out. Do you understand me? (laughs) So, it would behoove us to follow the narrator's advice And try to understand what this important detail. That Saul and Jonathan were the only ones with swords on the day of battle. What does that have to do with how the events play out in chapter 14? We see four aspects of the sword of Jonathan. As we look at four different characters. As they play their part in chapter 14. First. If we listen to the narrator, we realize, number one, the sword is solitary. The narrator tells us the sword is solitary. So on the day of the battle, there was neither sword nor spear found in the hand of any of the people with Saul and Jonathan, but Saul and Jonathan, his son, had them. The narrator makes it abundantly plain. He spells it out for us no swords except for the sword of Saul and the sword of Jonathan. And then in verse 1 of chapter 14, he shows us that only one of those swords went into battle. Verse 1. One day, Jonathan the son of Saul said to the young man who carried his armor, Come, let us go over to the Philistine garrison on the other side. But he did not tell his father... And then verse 2, in case if we had any question, tells us exactly where the other sword was. It was leaned up against the wall of a cave with Saul and his 600 fearful men. So whatever happens in this battle, it's the result of Jonathan's sword, one single Solitary sword. And throughout the narrative, the narrator keeps mentioning how Jonathan is having this constant conversation with this nameless armor bearer. As if to remind us over and over again that Jonathan is the only one who's carrying armor in this battle, he's the only one with a sword. And it's almost as if we can picture Jonathan having this conversation with this just sword that's following him around. Where should we go? What should we do? On the day of battle, number one, the sword is solitary. Well, secondly, as we look at Jonathan, we move on from the narrator, we focus the story moves to Jonathan. We see, secondly, that the sword is spirit-led, Not only is the sword solitary, the sword is spirit-led. So Jonathan and his armor-bearer, they go through this hidden pass between the rocky crags and they pass over. And you can picture them with their binoculars as they're kind of laying on the surface behind one of the rocks, peering down at this huge camp of the Philistines. And we have this fantastic little exchange between the two of them, verse 6. Jonathan said to the young man who carried his armor, let us go over to the garrison, garrison of these uncircumcised. It may be that the Lord will work for us, for nothing can hinder the Lord from saving by many or by few. Verse 7. And his armor bearer said to him, Do all that is in your heart. Do as you wish. Behold, I am with you, heart and soul. And so Jonathan comes up with a way to discern what is the Lord's will. How is the Spirit leading us into this battle? And he says, here's what we'll do. We'll pop out from behind our hiding place. And if the Philistines say, why don't you come on down to us? Then we'll know that the Lord's given them into our hand. But if they say, why don't you wait a second and we'll come up and show you what's what? Well, then we'll know that we need to retreat. So, verse 10. Verse 10, he says, if they say, come up to us, then we will go... We will go up, for the Lord has given them into our hand, and this shall be a sign for us. So they say, Agreed. Pop out from their hiding place, and the Philistines, they start to do some trash talking, right? Oh, the little Hebrew bunnies, they've decided to bounce out of their little hidey holes. Why don't you all come down here, and we'll show you a thing or two. Jonathan says to his armor bearer, There's our sign. Come on. The Lord's given them into our hand. You know, it's the exact opposite of how his father Saul acted in chapter 13. Saul acts on the basis of fear. Here we have Jonathan acting in faith. He says, It may be that the Lord will work for us, for nothing can hinder the Lord from saving by many. Or by few. His sword is led by the Spirit each step of the way. He only wants to do as the Lord leads him. He's ready to advance if it's the Lord's will. He's ready to retreat if it's the Lord's will. He's not going to force his agenda. He wants to see what the Lord has. And as he discerns the Lord's will, his sword is Spirit-led. Verse 14 tells us what Jonathan's spirit-led sword ended up doing that day. And that first strike with Jonathan and his armor-bearer, which they made, killed about 20 men without, uh, within, his, as it were, half a furrow's length and an acre of land. And there was a panic in the camp, in the field, and among all the people. The garrison and even the raiders trembled. The earth quaked and it became a very great Panic. So this initial strike of the spirit-led sword begins to reverberate. And even the earth begins to shake. Which then shifts the story and our focus to Saul. In verse 16, the story shifts to Saul. So the narrator showed us that the sword is solitary. Jonathan shows us that the sword is spirit-led. But as we turn our focus to Saul, we see that the sword is sufficient. Nothing more is necessary. In fact, any action on Saul's part will only detract from the glory of the victory that we're about to witness. Saul's watchmen, they are looking, they're watching out, and they begin to see the army begins to rock and reel, and it begins to spread and to to ebb and flow and and the people, the army is being thrown into a panic and the earth is shaking and Saul begins to scramble around to see who is causing this panic. Someone must be missing from their camp. Behold, Jonathan and his armor bearer were missing. Verse 18. So Saul said to Ahijah, bring the ark of God here. For the ark of God went at that time with the people of Israel. Now, while Saul was talking to the priest, the tumult, the the sound in the camp of the Philistines increased more and more. So Saul said to the priest, Withdraw your hand. As Saul is giving these instructions to the priest, those of us who have been here for the whole book of 1 Samuel, we're having flashbacks to chapter 4, when Ahijah's grandfather, Phinehas, marched the ark into the battle against the Philistines and lost it. And 30,000 Israelites fell. And everything inside of us is screaming out, Saul, do not do what you're about to do. And the Lord himself raises a thunder from the camp of the Philistine that says, Saul, put your hands back in your pocket. Don't you dare do a single thing. The sword is sufficient. Don't you even raise your sword? Don't you think about grabbing the ark and marching into battle? I don't need your help. You stay on the sidelines, Saul. I don't need your sword's help. The moment that fearful, faithless Saul even thinks about raising his sword and taking the ark into battle, the Lord stays His hand And it shows us the sword is sufficient. Finally, as we turn to the Philistines, we see, fourthly, the sword is salvific, which means the sword brings salvation. The sword brings salvation. You know, there may not have been a single sword in the hand of any Israelite that day but there were plenty of swords on the battlefield they just happened to be in the hands of the Philistines well that was certainly not a hurdle for the Lord was it verse 20 Then Saul and all the people who were with him rallied and went into battle and behold every Philistine sword was against his fellow and there was a great a very great confusion And then the strangest thing begins to happen All the traitor Israelites who had gone over to the side of the Philistines, they rise up and mutiny and start to fight the Philistines. And something even stranger happens. All the the frightful little Hebrews who've hidden like bunnies in holes and caves and tombs begin to grab whatever they can find. You know, you can picture these people running out of the tomb with dead man's bones and they're fighting the Philistines because they don't have any swords. And the Philistines flee before them. Verse 23, So the Lord saved Israel that day. God used the solitary, spirit-led, sufficient, salvific sword of Jonathan to save Israel. And there is no question how this came about. There is no question who it was that saved Israel that day. It was not the king that they had sought for. It was the Lord, the king, whom they had rejected. He didn't need chariots. He didn't need horsemen or thousands of soldiers carrying swords. One sword threw an entire multitude into a panic. And through the ripples of that one sword swing, thousands of Philistines began to slay one another, and the Lord saved his people. Now, the Lord is surprising on the one hand, and on the other hand, he's not very surprising. In one way, you know, the way that God saves his people is amazing and astounding, and in another, it's really not that astonishing. Because this is the way that God has been saving his people from the very beginning. And so we're so surprised that he's won this great battle and he saved his people through this one sword, and yet we're also not surprised because this is how God always operates. Pharaoh and his army barreling down on the Israelites on the bank of the Red Sea, and Moses says to the people, Be quiet, all you have to do is just be still. And God claps Pharaoh and his army with two walls of water. Israel faces Jericho, marches around the city for seven days, doesn't raise a single sword, and what happens? The walls fall. We're always surprised by the way God acts, but the way he acts is never surprising. I was reminded this week of Jesus and his disciples. You read in the Gospels, and Jesus spells it out. Loud and clear, as if he's writing ABCs on a chalkboard for his disciples. He says, repeat after me. Jesus is going to be arrested. Jesus is going to die on a cross. Jesus will be raised the third day. And yet, somehow, the disciples are so surprised when they show up the first day of the week, and the tomb is empty. Brothers and sisters, we read stories like the one in First Samuel chapter 14, and we are surprised at the way that they reveal the truth of God to us. But it really shouldn't be surprising that God wants us to know who He is, and what He has done, and what He is continuing to do, and what He will do through the person of His Son, Jesus Christ. He is showing us in the Old Testament over and over again through various shadows and figures and foreshadowings what he is going to do in order to save his people through the work of Jesus. Revealing to us the truth about himself and his plan for salvation. And what is more, God does not change The way that he acted in Genesis is the way he's going to act in 1 Samuel, is the way he's going to act in John, is the way he's going to act in the book of Acts, is the way he's going to act in Revelation. I can't believe it. God saved my uncle. He was a lying, swearing, SOB all his life. Hated the church. Never once wanted to set foot. But all of a sudden, this past week, he Bow the knee and, and, and received Jesus as Lord. It's amazing. It is amazing, but it's not surprising because God has been saving people just like your uncle for 2,000 years through the same Savior, Jesus Christ. Why are we so surprised? This morning, if I were to tell you that the things that were true of the sword of Jonathan are the things that are true of the sword of the Spirit, the Word of God, would you be surprised? Would you be surprised that 1 Samuel chapter 14 has so much more to show us than that Jonathan won a fun battle? That it shows us how God works, how He operates, how He is saving us. After all, the Bible often speaks of itself as a sword, does it not? Consider that the sword is solitary. There is only one. There is only one word that delivers to us the message about Jesus Christ, the Savior of the world. And the narrators of this book tell us over and over again that there is only one. Paul says, I'm astonished, Galatians, that you were so quick to desert him who called you in the grace of Christ and are turning to a different gospel, not that there is another one, But there are some who are troubling you, want to distort the gospel of Christ, but even if we or an angel from heaven should preach to you a gospel contrary to the one we preach to you, let him be accursed. Paul says the sword is solitary. There is only one. And you don't add to it. You don't say the Bible and the Book of Mormon and the Koran or the Sutras of Buddha. The Bible stands alone. No other word is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword. And in this word is the one gospel about the one Savior, Jesus Christ. And the one story of how God miraculously is saving and renewing the world through him. Other books may tell you how to reform sinners. Other books may tell you how to improve sinners. Other books may tell you how God might receive you if you do enough good works. He might just be fickle enough on that certain day to let you into heaven. But only one book contains the good news that God has turned the sword upon himself. And that he has put his own son to death on a cross to save sinners. The sword is solitary. But consider also how the sword is spiritual. Isn't the statement of Jonathan just so beautiful to our ears? Because it is the ringing theme of the entire Bible. Verse 6, Jonathan says, It may be the Lord will work for us for nothing. Nothing. Nothing can hinder the Lord from saving. By many. Or by few. Those of us who wish to act in faith should look to the example of Jonathan who continually is turning to His Helper. Brothers and sisters, we ought to turn to the Spirit, the Helper who has been given to us to follow the Lord's guidance. We look into the sword which the Lord has given to us, the Word of God, and we ask the Lord and we say, show us whether we should retreat or advance. All we want to do is be led by the Spirit and do Your will, Lord. 1 Peter tells us, No prophecy was ever produced by the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. Do you want to be led by the Spirit? Here you go. Here's the sword. The Spirit will lead you every step of the way. This is the word that will guide you and as you read it, the Spirit bears witness with our spirit, Paul says. He fashions our hearts To fit with the heart of God, so that the Spirit says, Do all that is in your heart, do as you wish, behold, I am with you, heart and soul, and He makes us men and women after God's own heart. That's the Spirit's job, after all, to give us a new heart the heart of Jesus Christ. Saul may have had the high priest. He may have had the ephod. He may have had the ark with him. But no amount of religiosity or religious practice can do anything for faithless Saul. All Jonathan needed was obedient faith. He was led by the Spirit. Friends, if you're in the faith, if you've trusted in Jesus Christ as your Savior and Lord, Jesus has promised that you do not step onto the battlefield, whether it's in your workplace, in your school, in your home, in your marriage. You do not set foot on that battlefield alone. You've been given a helper. The armor bearer himself. Jesus says, put on the armor. Take up the sword. And you will be led. By the Spirit. We see in Jonathan the ripple effect of one Spirit-led man. One man's faith accomplished all this. We don't know what God has in store, but we trust His glory. We trust His promise. We seek His face. We walk in faith saying, maybe that the Lord will work for us. Maybe many by many it may be by... Just a few. But this one thing we know, nothing can hinder the Lord from saving. Nothing. Consider thirdly how the sword is sufficient. Second Peter 1 says, His divine power has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness. Well, where has he granted them to us? through the knowledge of Him who called us to His own glory and excellence, by which He has granted to us His precious and very great promises. The sword is sufficient. The promises of God contained in this Word are everything we need to live lives of godliness. Every promise that we need to ballast our faith. Everything you need for every battle you will face every step of your journey between here and eternity. Everything is right here. This is sufficient. Nothing has been left out. There is nothing that you need to add. It's all here. This word is completely sufficient to accomplish everything God has purposed for His people Like Saul, so often we want to give the Word a little boost. Give the Word a little help, you know. Well, people aren't joining the church, and so maybe we need to give the Word a little help just to get people through the door. Like Saul, we want to get our hands in there. You know, people just are not responding to the message of the gospel. They're being turned away. They're not being saved. Maybe if we just meddle a little bit, and we soften the message, and we just take a few things out that you know, really offend the culture, then we'll really see our numbers begin to swell and people will be saved. Like Saul, we want to do a little something extra. If we make church fun again, then people will come. If we make the sermon shorter and we add more videos and we make the service more entertaining, things will improve The moment we begin to add anything to the word, the sword loses its power. Because the sword is sufficient. Finally, consider how the sword is salvific. 2 Timothy 3, But as for you, continue in what you have learned and have firmly believed, knowing from whom you learned it. And how from childhood you've been acquainted with the sacred writings which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. Only one book is able to make you wise for salvation through Christ Jesus. And this is it. The sword is salvific. It brings to us the message of salvation. This is the only book that contains from Alpha to Omega, from beginning to finish, the entire plan of how God is saving the world through Jesus Christ. In these pages we learn of a Savior who was predestined before the foundation of the world and who was promised to a fallen race of man who had rebelled against God and who in the fullness of time came and walked this earth as a mortal man so that he could die in the place of sinful men and women like you and me. Who didn't accept Jesus with open arms, but when it was our turn to stand on the judgment slab, we cried out, crucify him. And we rejected our king, and we threw him to the wolves, and we nailed him to a cross, and we killed him. But the joke was on sin and death because as Jesus emerged from the grave, he turned their swords on one another. And as the earth shook, sin slew death, and death slew sin in the person of the risen Jesus Christ. And he has emerged victorious in the fight for those he came to save. The sword brings us salvation. I'm not ashamed of the gospel for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. To the Jew first and also to the Greek. If you believe in the message of this book, if you trust the good news of this salvific sword today, Jesus Christ will save you. When we preach and proclaim the truth of the word of God alone, we ensure that only one thing is going to get the credit when people are saved. It's not going to be Pastor Chad for being so eloquent and telling such moving stories that just tug on people's heartstrings and make them want to walk the aisle. It's not the the keyboard player who just knows how to bend the notes just right to get people's emotions up so that they want to fill the altar. It's not our musicians who are so professional and put together and awe-inspiring that just people flood the flood the sanctuary and fill the pews. It's not our children's ministry because it's got great bouncy houses and trampolines, but it is the gospel of Jesus Christ and that alone that is saving. Brothers and sisters, may we live like the sword is the only thing that keeps us alive from week to week. May we stumble into this place starved, hungry, such that if we are not fed the word of God, we will leave here and die. Because we don't live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. The word is saving us day by day. The word is salvific because it is the very word of our Savior, Jesus Christ. Friends, one day the book of Revelation tells us that He will return to us riding on a white horse, the one whose name is Faithful and True. He is clothed in a robe dipped in blood and the name by which he is called is the word of God. And on that day, the one solitary, spirit-led, sufficient, salvific sword will swing. From his mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations and he will rule them with a rod of iron. He will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God the Almighty on his robe and on his thigh he has a name written King of Kings and Lord of Lords. And so today may we march behind our Savior the one who swings the solitary Spirit-led sufficient salvific Sword. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we put all of our faith and trust in you, because you are the fulfillment of all God's promises to us, your people. We pray that our faith would be strengthened in your Word and the power that it gives to salvation through your name. We pray that we would not be ashamed of the gospel. would proclaim it far and wide as the only hope for a dying and sinful world. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.